Psalm 98, today is the Lord's Day. It's also Christmas Eve, which makes it doubly special, and we get to celebrate both with one of the most special songs in the, the Psalter. It's a song of praise to God. I'm sure you know this as a believer, but the Bible is an amazing treasure. An anonymous writer once wrote this about the Bible. It says, This book contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It's the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Christ is its subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It's given to you in life will be opened in the judgment and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, rewards the greatest labor, and condemns all who trifle its holy precepts. Amen. While you approach uh, the Bible as a single, divinely inspired book, it's also full of various types of genres. And we have a different one than we have been working through in Romans 7 before us this morning. A psalm is a different genre than, say, an epistle like Romans or, or a narrative like the Gospel of, of Luke. And, and you, you interpret them accordingly. For instance, you don't read about history and then try to replicate everything that, that you read. That's not the purpose of, of narrative, of, of history. The purpose is to accurately tell you what happened. But if you receive an email or a, or a letter from your boss, for example, giving you instructions about what to do when he's gone on vacation next week, that's different. That is the purpose. It's a different type of genre of writing. It, it's to give you instructions to follow, to prescribe certain actions for you to take. And the Bible works the, the same way. God wrote parts of Scripture as history to tell you accurately what happened. It, uh, God gives you letters to, to give you instructions to, to follow and prescribe certain actions to take. And, and he also wrote a, a book of biblical songs to sing. And that's what we're looking at this morning. We are picking up our biblical hymnals, if you will, and expositionally singing a, a psalm, a song that's, that's typically attributed to, to Christmas. In fact, we have already sung a song this morning that is directly related to Psalm 98. We looked at the songs of Christmas several years ago, and this one is the most famous. It's the, the, the songs that are, are traditionally related to the Christmas season. And the Psalter is God's inspired hymn book. All of them written in the Old Testament, obviously. Many of those fulfilled in the New Testament. And Now, before we we jump into this specific psalm, I, I want to maybe give you a better understanding of how to interpret them. So 
if it's a different type of genre, then there is there some information I need in order to think through how to interpret a, a psalm, and, and indeed there is. And I found a, the most helpful summary from an old English theologian who, who said whenever you're a, a, approaching a scriptural song, a psalm, say verses like an epistle, like, like, like the Philippians, you might think of the difference between them, like the difference between a biology teacher and, and the way a music teacher approaches their, their subjects. A biology teacher dissects the subject matter so they can define each part and explain it. And that's what you would do with, with an epistle. The, the whole is taken apart and then the details are, are analyzed and then put back together. A music teacher, on the other hand, has a different approach. They teach the meaning of the lyrics, obviously, but then they also teach you the tune of the song. And then they inspire you to sing the song. That, that's the purpose of it. It's to sing. And you, you, you must understand what you're singing for sure. You don't want to just mouth words or, or listen to, to notes that, that ding in your ears. I mean, there, and there's plenty to learn about music theory and te the technical components. But but once you understand what you're singing, once you understand the words and, and the way that it's put together, the aim is that you would feel what, what you're singing. Think of how inappropriate it would be to, uh, to, to sing a song of grief in, in an upbeat, silly way. Um, or a song of celebration with, with some kind of dour sadness. You wouldn't do that. You, you would sing an upbeat song with, with a smile on your face. You would sing a lament with, with, a, with, with a hint of, of sadness in your, in, in your tone. And so the English theologian went on to say that the threefold task then of a psalm teacher, somebody who is teaching the, the Psalter, is that we get it and we feel it and then we, we want it, we desire it, we, we, we want to express it uh, before others and, and to God. And that, frankly, should be easy with the one that we have in front of us the, this morning. This is not a lament, this is actually a song of praise, it's... Easier because this is a song about the joy that you and I will, will sense at the coming of Jesus Christ and the joy that we can anticipate even this morning as we anticipate the, the Lord's coming. Have you ever picked up a hymn book and started just flipping through the pages until you came to a song that you knew and you knew well and then you just started singing it? I think some of the fondest memories that uh, that I have as a believer has actually been with, with a hymn book, with the Bible first, and then a, and then a hymnal. Singing with other songs like He Leadeth Me or Come Thou Fount. Um, I can remember times, even as I was, was, was putting this message together, uh, about how uh, songs have been, been a balm in my, my deepest struggles. I can remember coming to church alone without anyone here, and just sitting in a pew and, and opening a, a hymn book, and, and I, I was saying songs of lament or songs of victory whenever I was, whenever I was down. And your musical preferences can, can vary, but we've all been given an inspired songbook, which is the Psalter. It's placed right here for all of those purposes. And God's hymnal was given to His people so that we might have truth expressed to us in the, in, in the song. And this one, this divine hymnal, is filled with refrains for every season. Songs of lament, ballads of history, hymns of victory. I mean, what would you sing 
if you were an Israelite upon entering the city of David. You're in Galilee and you're going to Jerusalem. And you've made the week trek there for one of the high holidays and you're arriving at the base of the hill and you're looking up and you can see off in the distance the, the temple and, and out of the center of, of the temple smoke rising from the sacrifices. What would you sing before you started to, to climb the, 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 the hill to the temple? Well, you would sing one of the songs of ascent, which would be Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. What song would you sing to your children as they grew up to teach them about the faithfulness of, of their God? Or, or what songs would you sing in the congregation during times of remembrance when you wanted to remember what, what God had done? Well, you would sing the wisdom psalms, or you would sing Psalm 78, which retells the story of God's faithfulness to His people. What would you sing when you anticipated the Lord's coming? that He's going to come to the earth. He didn't just create and spin this thing in, in the middle of space and, and, and let it be. He's actually coming. Well, I would say you would sing Psalm 98. It would be obvious if you, we worked through it today. Psalm 98 is an anticipation when things are really good for God's people and it's expressed in praise and rejoicing and it culminates when it's really, really good for God's people. That's whenever the Lord comes reigns over the earth. This psalm is actually the origin for the Christian hymn, Joy to the World. And the Joy to the World was written by Isaac Watts and it was published in 1719. That was a long time ago. It wasn't composed into the song that we sing until 1848. But when Isaac Watts wrote it, it was not written for Christmas. The song says, Joy to the, Lord, uh, joy to the World, the Lord has come. And, and what... It, he means by that is the Lord has come to reign. And in Psalm 98, the earth receives her king. Bethlehem doesn't receive a baby in Psalm 98. This is actually looking beyond Christmas, but Christmas starts the, the process. The song speaks more about the second coming of Christ than it does his first one. And we sing it at Christmas because the promise of Christ's first coming in the Old Testament will ultimately be fulfilled in the second coming, promised in the New Testament. As this incarnation, this God with us, the incarnation of the Savior gives way to the revelation of Christ as King. And this psalm has three parts. Let me show you how it's, it, it, it's put together. They each build on each other. The, the choir starts the psalm, and it's made up of God's covenant people who praise Him for what He's done to save them in verses 1 through 3. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song in verse 1, for He has done wonderful things. And then it describes some wonderful things the Lord's done. And then it ends, with all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So the choir then starts the, the psalm. That's made up of God's covenant people. Bill Barrett called it a song of, of salvation. And then in verse 4, there, there's a change. There are shouts of coronation. Verse 4. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. The nations of the earth join the, uh, the, the song with the in instruments of worship, praising its king who's reigning. And then there is another addition in verse 7. It says, let the sea roar and all it contains. 
the world and all those who dwell in it. So there are now songs of, uh, sounds of celebration, I should say, beginning in verse, verse 7. All of nature completes the ensemble by providing this background melody to, to the Lord as he comes to judge. So you have a song of, 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 of from wonder-filled believers, verses 1 through 3, an orchestra played by joyful nations in verses 4 through 6, and then you have an accompaniment from liberated nature, or as Isaac Watts wrote, let heaven and nature sing. And as Israel sang this song in the past, we'll all sing it in the future when the Lord returns to, to reign. We'll call it three members of the Lord's coming ensemble. There's a song a wonder-filled believers sing, an orchestra, joyful nations play, and then an accompaniment, liberated nature provides. Let's look at the first one. A song, wonder-filled believers sing in verses 1 through 3. Look, if you would, at verse 1. Sing a new song to the Lord, for He has done wonderful things. His right hand and His holy arm have gained the victory for Him. And so there's the command to sing in this verse, uh, very first verse, sing a new song to the Lord. That's the command, followed by six reasons why we, we should sing. And that's what's in verses, the rest of verse 1, 2, and, and 3. I know that's small, but you squint, you'll be able to, to make sense of it there. There's six of them, there's a lot to get on that one little slide. First of all, we sing because of his miracles. We sing because of his victory, his salvation, his righteousness, his faithfulness, and his revelation. You're commanded to sing. Why should you sing? Or what should you sing about? Well, here the song tells us exactly what we're to sing about. And this song is not just about worship. This is a song of worship. And you can see that in the title, Psalm 98. Look, look, look in, uh, right under your, your heading in your, in, in your Bibles. It'll say Psalm 98. And then it may have something that's in your study Bible, a call to praise uh, the Lord for His righteousness. That's what mine says. Yours may say something else because that's not inspired. That's something a, 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 a study Bible person put in there. But then the, under mine it says a psalm. That is part of the original text. That's inspired. So it's a psalm. That, that's the heading. It's a song of worship. There's no author listed it just simply says a song. It's the shortest introduction in the Psalter. It's the only place this simple heading is used in all of the, all of the Psalms. And the singer's identity is unmistakably clear. It's, it's the believers sing a song to the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, God's people, sing a song to Him, followed with reasons that you are to sing, what you are to sing about. The, the songwriter issues a call to worship, and those who have witnessed God's salvation, then he gives six reasons, which start with his wonderful deeds. Uh, old sing uh, to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. We sing because of his miracles, first of all. That's what that word means. The word wonderful means exactly what you would, would expect, something that fills you with wonder. You're full of wonder. It's the primary word for a miracle in the, in the Old Testament. 
Exodus 3, 3.20. God said to Moses, So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. It's speaking about Pharaoh. You remember the story of the Exodus. I mean, the, the writer means all of the miracles and astounding acts that uh, the, the Lord uh, performed in front of his people. That's what they're just singing for, like, like uh, the, the staffs turning into a snake or Moses' leprous hand. And it, There's probably a lot of material. And there's no clearer time when, when God did this than, than in the Exodus, which is surely what the writer in, implies here. I mean, God performed miracles. He performed amazing feats in Egypt for all to see. The, the river of blood, the plague of flies and frogs, the destruction of cattle, the power over nature with, with hail and storms. And the final miracle, the angel of death, showed God's absolute command and control over death itself. God showed that he had power to take life. And he also had power to preserve it with the Israelites. I can remember a choir number that we used to sing whenever I first came to, came to Christ. Uh, spent a day or two in West Virginia this past week, and we, we drove the kids by, by the church that I was saved in. And Isabella had never seen it. At least she couldn't remember seeing it. She was so excited to see where Daddy had been saved. She keeps hearing about my testimony. And we drove through the through the parking lot of this this uh, little church, and I can remember being there in the choir loft, singing, or as this song says, uh, making a joyful noise to the Lord. And one of the songs we sang was a, was a song called Under the Blood. I couldn't sing it without being just filled with incredible praise for God because of the words. And the second stanza says, the prophets of old line the home shores. Their faith through the ages doth ring. They've waited so long for the moment, the crowning of Jesus the King. There's Daniel, Elijah, and Noah. They talk of the fire and the flood. And if they ask how I made it, I'll tell them I came through the blood. Christ did for me what I could not do. They're under the blood. Just like the Passover in Egypt's land. It took the blood to save man. Washed and made clean, I'm justified when God sees the blood. I mean, what wonder-filled thing God has done in, in your life. Can you think of something this morning? Surely that's a reason to sing, whatever it might be. As you look back over your life, can, can you think of some moment whenever the Lord left you in awe because of His intervention? I mean, it was unmistakable that it was the Lord. There was, there was no way that you could have gotten out of this predicament. And it might be something simple or something great. I mean, there, there's no other way around it. This was God's intervention, providentially, in some way, in, in your life. In my life, I can think of smaller things, like whenever the Lord provided a, a job and a place to live, whenever I was going to seminary, and He did it in the last hour of the very last day that we were in town not knowing where we would go. Or big things, like when he saved my marriage from, from destruction, may even recently, peace with an anxiousness. I mean, whatever it was, it was the Lord's work that he brought it to pass, and that's a reason to sing. But it also says that we're, we're not just to sing about his miracles or because of his miracles, but we sing because of his victory. Look at verse 1 again. 
Oh, sing to the Lord. There's the command, a new song. Sing about his miracles or because of his miracles. Sing because of his victory. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. And the psalmist describes the instrument of God's deliverance. He does wondrous things, and here's how he does it. He does it with his right hand, his holy arm. The psalmist describes the instrument that God accomplishes the victory. The verb, he gained the victory. God gained the victory has the same root as the word of salvation. God brings salvation. God delivers in a saving way. And that's the theme of these verses. It's Verse 1 is a reference to salvation. Verse 2 and 3 have references to salvation as well. Now, now when somebody makes a reference to the right hand, sit at my right hand, or, or, or somebody's right hand, it, it, it implies might or strength. And sorry if you're a lefty, but the right hand is usually, typically, a person's more powerful hand. It's their more dominant arm. And, and so his arm here is referring to, to God's might. But the psalmist qualifies that even further. Do you see that? His right hand and his holy arm, meaning this is no human arm. This is a supernatural one. And so the second thing that the psalmist says that we, we can praise God for, or, or we should praise God for, is because we haven't delivered ourselves. The Lord intervenes in saving ways, in delivering kind of ways. We should sing about that. And, and it's a reminder, God doesn't deliver, uh, we don't deliver ourselves. God's the one that delivers us. And it says He accomplished it on His own. He didn't cooperate with you. You didn't cooperate with Him. It was His holy arm that delivered you. And that's what Israel is confessing here. I mean, one commentator said, when Moses led Israel out of Egypt and they came to the Red Sea, what did Moses tell them? Well, here's exactly what he told them. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Did they have reason to be afraid? better believe they did. They had a sea in front of them and Egyptians bearing down on them from behind. He says, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more. And they never saw those Egyptians again. I mean, he, he went on to ask, what did Israel contribute to the parting of the Red Sea? Absolutely nothing. And what do you contribute to your salvation? Absolutely nothing. It was accomplished by His right hand, by, by the Lord's holy arm, and they have accomplished the victory, and that's something to praise God for. Not only that, not only His miracles, His victory, but, but because of His salvation. The Lord has made His salvation known, verse 2. The Lord has made known His salvation. And that's a reason to sing, isn't it? Without God making His salvation known, you would be blind and dark in this world. This is a reason to sing that God saved you. Not because you were good. Not because you deserved it. But because He's good. Because He's gracious. I heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Spread the tidings all around. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. And the psalmist says he's made that known. 
long before the guy with the spray can under the underpass on the interstate, the psalmist made it known, Jesus said. Ligon Duncan said, what was the message of the Exodus? Was the problem that Egypt was sinful and Israel was righteous? And poor Israel was just being oppressed by mean, old, bad, sinful Egyptians? Is that the message? He said, no, it's not the message. The Israelites tried to worship other gods even as God was saving them, even after God saved them. God, in saving the Israelites, didn't show that if you are good, you get saved, and if you're bad, you get condemned. He showed that if you're going to be saved, it's not because you're good, it's because I'm good. God's good. It's because I'm gracious. It's because I'm merciful. Sovereign grace is a reason to sin. Spurgeon said, brethren, to say that we save ourselves is to utter an absurdity. We are called in Scripture a temple, a holy temple to the Lord. But shall anyone assert that the stones of the edifice were their own architect? Shall it be said that the stones of the building in which we are now assembled cut themselves into this present shape and spontaneously came together and piled this spacious edifice? Shall it also be said that those who are redeemed, redeem themselves? That slaves of Satan break their own fetters? Shall it be asserted that those who were once dead have spiritually quickened themselves? Can the dead make themselves alive? Who shall assert that Lazarus, rotting in the grave, came forth to life of himself? No. He hath trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with him. And the redemption of his people shall give glory unto himself alone. Glory to God. God saved me. Did he save you? Has he saved you? If he has, it's a reason to sing. Do you know that he has? If so, it's a reason to sing this morning. And if not, you can give your, your, your heart a song and you can give the angels a reason to rejoice by coming to Christ. The Bible says angels rejoice over one sinner who repents. And in salvation, God displays his righteousness before all. That's, a, that's a, another reason to, to sing. Sing because of his righteousness. Look at verse 2 again. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness. There's the parallel. He's made known his salvation and then made known he's revealed his righteousness in sight of the nations, in sight of the Gentiles. Sing because of God's righteousness. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that God proves that, that he's right. And that he's done that before everyone, not done that in some secluded corner of the world. And notice it says it's in the sight of all nations. And again, that's not just Israel, that's the Gentiles. There were men in the Bible who claimed to be right, only for God to prove them wrong. There's a way into man. It seems right. In the end is death. Pharaoh mocked at the God of Moses, only for God to publicly prove he, he was right or righteous. Unbelieving Israelites mocked God's prophets uh, before Babylon came to, to punish them. Uh, Belshazzar mocked God, and he died. People mock God today, just like, just like all the other times before, God will prove he's right 
He was right all along when He comes. And you can be sure, God may be mocked in the sowing, but, but He'll not be mocked in the reaping. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. That's what the great white throne judgment is, is about. The books are opened. And the books are opened to give evidence of God's righteous judgment. And you, you won't find a single work in the book, in your book. When your life's work is written, all that you have done, when God goes through every one of them publicly before the great white throne, there won't be a single thing there that you could stand on for eternity. And that will prove, will demonstrate God's righteous judgment that's about to, to happen. And when He does that, it will be public for all to see. The fact that God's righteousness will prevail is a reason to sing. There's someone who's right, and it will be known. But in that moment, He'll not forget His own people, no matter how long it takes for that day to come. And So here is another reason to sing. We'll give you what at verse 3. The command to sing, and the reason, He has remembered His loving kindness and His faithfulness to the house of Israel. He's revealed His righteousness before in the sight of the, 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 the nations, but He's remembered His covenant. The psalmist says God does not forget His promises. God remains true to His word, and that's the reason to sing. You remember what God promised Abraham long before Moses in the Abrahamic covenant? He promised Abraham three things. He promised Abraham a son, He promised Abraham land, and He promised Abraham blessing. Promised blessing that would flow to all the earth. Well, the, the Son has come, both Isaac and, and, and Jesus. That's what we celebrate today and, and tomorrow. But, but the rest of the promises have yet to be fulfilled. The, the land promise is not fulfilled. Israel doesn't have all the land. They never have had all the land. But they will have all the land one day. The full blessing of Israel has not been fulfilled, but it will be. Again, small, but just listen if you can't see it. This is Romans 11. We'll get there. Sometime. For I, do not, uh, for I do not want you, brothers and sisters, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. What's the mystery? That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove, will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. When will that be complete? Well, when the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled. When Jesus comes again to reign on the earth in the millennial kingdom. And the last thing that Jesus told his disciples before he ascended into heaven was, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. But the Father has fixed in His own hand that you'll be my witnesses until that, that day comes. Witnesses of what? Witness of the fact that God is faithful, that He sent Christ, and that He fulfills His promises, all of them. And if you'll repent and believe, He'll save you. And when God fulfills His promises, every eye will see it. And that's another reason to sing. Finally, we sing because of His revelation. Look at the end of verse 3. He's revealed His righteousness, His rightness in the sight of all the nations. 
He's remembered his covenant and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. And then all of the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. We sing because of his revelation. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. The final reason to sing is because all the earth has a display of God's saving nature. Now this is an Old Testament song sung by Israel, first and foremost. In progressive revelation, it was written by Israelite, by an Israelite to Israel to sing. And they're singing about the things that have already taken place. They're singing about the things that God's already done. They're singing about the wonders of Egypt. They're, they're singing about how God has proven himself right before the nations, how he's remembered his covenant with, with Israel. The, they're, they're singing about the fact that the Gentiles have seen God's marvelous deeds already. Second Chronicles 2029 20, is an example. And the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. You remember what Rahab said to the spies? Joshua chapter 2. It says, Now before the spies lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have despaired because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. These are Gentiles talking about this, not just Israelites. Before you, when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings uh, of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard these reports, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in anyone any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth below. Dr. Bill Barrick even gave a modern day example uh, of this, how God reveals himself in this way to the nations. He told the story of, of, uh, of the war in 1967, the Six-Day War, when the Israeli army was, was facing uh, a, a promised extermination from Arab countries on every side. Nothing's changed. And as the Israeli troops pressed through the, the Sinai toward uh, Egypt's, uh, the Egyptian line, they sang songs in solidarity as they marched. And the Egyptians, hearing them, thought that meant that the Jews were celebrating, that they'd defeated all the other Arab countries, and that they'd won the war, so they fled their positions, and they left their boots behind in the sand so they could run faster barefoot. True story. Can you imagine what the Israelites thought when they came upon the Egyptian positions expecting bullets and they found empty boots? I can. It's right here in this song. Those who were believers thought all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. That's what they thought. And the Bible says one day that every eye will see the Lord. Matthew 24, verses 30 and 31 says, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. There'll be no battle on that day. There'll be nobody running and leaving their boots in the sand. Only the Lord's victory on that day. 
And when that happens, the nations will add their voices to the to the song. Here's the second member of the Lord's coming ensemble. It's a it's an orchestra of joyful nations, uh, and they're playing. Look if you would at verse four. It says, "Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Be cheerful and sing for joy, and sing praises." Now, verses one through three is a picture of God's salvation toward Israel, toward His people. It's a call to worship. But that salvation happens before all the nations, which is why they're called to worship in this second stanza in verses 4 through 6. Nature joins in at the very end in verses 7 through through 9. So the song starts with this choir of wonder-filled believers over what God's done, and now it picks up an orchestra of joyful nations, and they both express anticipation from God's people and then a recognition by, by, the, by the rest of the world, by the nations. Now this verse doesn't just quote our favorite one that I mentioned earlier whenever somebody can't sing, like me. We make a joyful noise unto the Lord. When you pay attention to what's going on here, there's, some, there's something shocking in this verse. And I've already pointed it out to you, but I'll do it again. We can understand why God's covenant people would sing. We can understand why the Israelites would sing. God's delivered them. And he does, He's done so publicly, and He's done in spite of their sin. It was His holy arm that did it. But notice who's shouting and making a joyful noise here. Shout, verse 4, shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Be cheerful and sing for joy, and sing praises. It's the nations. It's all the earth. It's not just Israel. This is not a church member noisily yodeling in, you know, in the pew behind you. I mean, this is an outsider singing to God. This is the nations singing. And they, and they shout. They, they're cheerful. They break out. They resound. They make music. Shout joyfully. Or make a joyful noise means to spontaneously break out in praise. I mean, why would the Gentiles, the nations, shout joyfully before the Lord? And beyond that, the, the instruments listened here are regularly used in temple worship. Look at you what verse 5. It says, sing praises to the Lord with the lyre. With the lyre and the, the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn. Lyre. A lyre, trumpets, horns, or shofars. I don't know what comes to your mind whenever you, you, you think of the temple. But it smelled wonderful. The combination between barbecue with incense. It sounded joyful and festive. There was instruments playing, music. It was lovely to look at. It was gold and tapestries. It was lively. There were people all around coming and, and going. It was holy. People were ceremonially clean. They were separated from all the unbelievers. These were God's people. No outsiders were allowed in in the temple. All were welcome to come God's way, but if you won't come God's way, you weren't allowed in. That would be the blessing of heaven, by the way. No sin. No mocking, only believers worshiping. It'll smell wonderful. It'll be joyful and festive. It'll be lovely to look at. It'll be lively. 
and it'll be holy. But in verse 5, it says the Gentiles are taking up these instruments. They're the ones shouting or breaking into praise to the Lord in verse 4, and they're taking up instruments. I mean, how can that be? Well, a clue is in this word for horns. Trumpet or bugles was like a straight metal instrument, usually made of silver. It was part of a musical ensemble, but, but horns that this word are natural instruments made of an animal horn. Have you seen a shofar, the curled thing that, that, that's blown? And they were restricted for gaining people's attention. They were used to announce the arrival of a king, a call to worship. And if that's not clear enough, there's a specific answer to the mystery spelled out in verse 6. Look at verse 6. With trumpets and with the sound of the horn, shout joyfully before the king, the Lord. And now you know why they're taking up these instruments and what they're singing about, who they're singing to. That's why the nations are shouting, is when the earth realizes their true king. They'll praise him rather than dismiss him. They'll break into spontaneous worship. They'll blow the Israelite shofar, announcing the king of all the earth has, has arrived. And when will that happen? Is that happening right now? Well, you go to a football game, which they're great. I love them. You can go any number of events where there's a large crowd of people and people will break into, you know, into, into shouts and spontaneous praise. But the world's not doing that for the Lord today, are they? They're not. Believers are doing that today. When will the Lord do that? Or when will, the, when will the earth do that for, for the Lord? Well, it's when Jesus comes to reign. So Isaac Watts declared, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. And when the earth receives her king, that's when this spontaneous worship will break out. Can you think of another call to worship where the earth has a promised blessing? What does Luke say? is the announcement of the angels when he came the first time. And the angels said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good, night, uh, good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for all the earth. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. I mean, why can there be peace on earth? Because Jesus has come. When will there be peace on earth? When he comes again. And when he does, believers will be singing, all of the earth will be joining in, and nature will be liberated from the curse, and they'll join in the chorus. Look at the, the third member of the Lord's coming ensemble. It's an accompaniment liberated nature provides. Watch the shift here in verse 7. It says, May the sea roar and all it contains, the world and all those who dwell in it. Verse 8, May the rivers, cl rivers clap their hands. May the mountains sing together for joy. So you went from God's people to all the earth, all the nations, and now you're talking about creation. The seas thunder, the rivers clap, the mountains resound, and... These all refer to sounds that nature makes. Nature's wonderful, isn't it? 
I came back yesterday to my house and got out of the truck and I heard a songbird, probably because it was warmer yesterday. I haven't heard that for, for a while and I noted it because I hadn't heard it. Or maybe in the summertime when the katydids are going, you, there's different sounds of, of nature. Or you go to the beach, you leave your door open or your window open and you're close to the ocean. You can hear the waves rolling in and, and out. If you've ever sat close to the to the, to the sea when the tide is, is up and close your eyes, the, the rolling thunder of, of the waves crashing is, is, in the, is in the background. The rivers, it can sound like clapping hands as they tumble over the rocks and throw up waves and they smack together with each other. And the mountains resound here, meaning that they're like background noise. They echo as the wind draws, draws over them. The wind blows through the forest. It, it filters through the trees and it creates a, creates a hum in the, in the background. And they do all of this before Yahweh. They do all of this before the God of Israel. They do all of this before the, the God of your salvation. Derek Kidner said, Nature is artless and inarticulate, unlike the praise of men. But it too can be heard already since the whole earth is full of the glory of God. It just does it. It does it because that's the noise that it makes, declaring the glory of God. You and I have the ability to think about God and put that into words and use the skills and the gift that He's given us to make music. But currently, nature's under a curse, isn't it? I mean, the purpose of all of creation is to praise and glorify God. Everything was made for Him. Everything was made to, to bring Him glory. And, and you see in this song the progression of how that will happen one day in perfection. I mean, think of this. Before the fall, the, the perfect orchestra was in sync. Adam and Eve and all of creation could sing in perfect harmony to the Lord. But after the fall, they're severely out of tune, aren't they? Man fell into sin and he doesn't even want to sing to God anymore. Romans 1 says the unsaved man doesn't even acknowledge God or give thanks to God, much less sing or have a song in his heart to the Lord. Nature declares the glory of God, but it also groans under the curse. And it's a waiting, it's deliverance. I don't have it up there, let me read it to you. This is Romans 8. We'll get there too, probably quicker than Romans 11, I'm sure. Romans 8, 19. For the creation waits with eager longing. What's it waiting for? For the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And here's the deliverance. Look at verse 9. Before the Lord, before He is coming to judge the earth, He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with fairness. So just like verses 1 through 3, Gives the reason God's people sing. Verse 9 gives the reason creation accompanies. Creation will accompany because the Lord is coming to judge the earth. 
Because the Lord has come to exercise authority over the world and set it right, which includes Israel and all the nations and in nature itself. And the psalmist uh, here brings the choir back together in proper order. God's people, then all the nations, and then nature itself. And it starts with a call to worship to you, to God's people. And they begin praise and as they sing, they, they sing before all the peoples of the earth. You're gathered here this morning with people going in all different directions around you, living life, maybe celebrating Christmas for whatever reason, but you're here and you're singing unto the Lord and you're here because you know the Lord and you're doing that in front of everyone. You may have left even family this morning to come to church. And they begin their praise and they... They sing and they sing before all the peoples of the earth and their praise is directly related to the salvation of God. And then in verses 4 through 6, the rest of mankind is called to join in playing to their rightful king. They strike up the orchestra and now here the background chorus is invited being all creation. And when the curse is lifted from creation, creation will sing again in perfect harmony the praises of the Creator. And all of this will come in the end when God judges the earth. Which means when He'll come and He'll remove the curse. It's been a long time since we've been in Ecclesiastes. It's one of my favorite Old Testament books. You remember how it ends? Here's how it ends. The end of the matter. Let's hear the end of the matter, Solomon says. Chasing all different kinds of futility, vanity, everywhere. What's the end? What, what can you take from, from looking in all different directions trying to find some purpose and, and meaning? Well, here, here's where you find it. In the end, the end of the matter, after all's been heard, fear God, keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Why? For God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. So notice it says, for God will bring every deed into judgment. Now you normally think judgment, you think judging of bad. But notice what it says. For God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. God will bring everything into judgment, whether good or evil. His judgment involves not only, not only the punishing of evil, but the affirming and the rewarding of that which is good. In God's judgment, that what's talked about here in this psalm, He'll judge the world with righteousness. He's going to come and judge the earth. That means that He's going to make the things that are crooked straight. The things that bring frustration. The things that are maddening. People escaping justice. People that have done horrible and evil things. Maybe to you. Maybe when you were young. Maybe when you were old. Maybe... Maybe someone who has already passed, someone who doesn't acknowledge it, someone who's still getting away with it. They, one day, God will straighten out what is crooked, a disease or something that you have in life, something broken, that some sin, some struggle, some weakness that's part of the fall that you can't undo and that you battle against in, in the Lord. One day... God will straighten out what is crooked. That will be removed. That will be, will, will be smoothed. And He'll make right what is wrong. And on that day, He'll remove the curse. 
Not just remove sin, but the effects of the curse. Can you imagine what it'll be like to live without a curse? You can't. You've never lived that way, ever. You can try to read and imagine what it was like for Adam and Eve in the garden. Read and try to imagine what it's like in the kingdom or in heaven. But you and I have never lived without a curse around us. And this psalm is a rehearsal for that day. Do you think we'll sing on the day whenever the curse is removed? Sin's gone. Satan is gone. All of your weaknesses are gone. And there'll be absolutely nothing but pure, unadulterated worship for God. No sin, no devil in a perfect place, in a perfect relationship with Him. I think I'm going to sing on that day. I sing in the middle of a day with all that around me because of the Spirit of God. And this psalm is a rehearsal for that day. At God's coming, in His presence, we'll sing with all of our hearts. But on that day, what will we sing? Well, look back at verse 1. Here's the command. We'll sing. What are we going to sing? It says a new song. Sing a new song to the Lord. Revelation 5 records the words of what we're going to sing on this day that this psalm points to. Revelation 5 says, and they sang a new song. Saying, worthy. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to break its seals. For you were slain. And you purchased people for God with your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them into a kingdom and priests to our God. They will reign upon the earth. There are three topics to this new song. We're going to sing on this day that the psalm points to. We're going to sing, You are worthy, Lord. You are worthy. And we're going to sing, You're worthy because you were slain. We're going to worship the risen Christ. The marks of the slaughter are still upon him for all eternity. And we're, we're going to sing because he purchased the people. He didn't make it possible. Of course, he made it possible, but that's that's not why he just doesn't just stop there. It says he purchased people. He accomplished it. His right hand, his holy arm has brought salvation. And because of all of that, he'll come. Because of all that, he'll reign over all. And until then, we anticipate that day and we sing joy to the world. The king has come. We would add, with New Testament revelation, joy to the world, the king has come, and the king is coming again. Did you know how long before Isaac Watts, long before he penned his words, Mary was doing the same thing in, in Luke 1, 46 and 55? It's, we mentioned it last week. Mary's... Magnificat. Adam Clark, uh, who's not really in our camp, but, but, but a dead theologian. They're better to read than the living ones because you know how their life played out. Adam Clark laid out every line of Psalm 98. And he, and he, he, he looked at what Mary was saying and showed that there, there seems to be a parallel there. He said the whole psalm of praise of Christ coming to, to save the world, which is foretold by the psalmist, is declared 
in, by Mary. Listen to what he laid out. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. That's Psalm 98. And listen to what Mary says in Luke 1. My soul doth magnify the Lord. She echoes. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. My soul doth magnify the Lord. He hath done marvelous things, wonderful things, Mary. He that is mighty hath done great things. The song. With his own right hand and his holy arm hath he gotten himself the victory. Mary. He hath showed strength with his arm and scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. The psalmist. The Lord hath made known his salvation. His righteousness hath he openly showed. Mary. His mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. The psalm. He hath remembered his mercy and his truth toward the house of Israel. Mary, he hath preserved his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Mary had this song on her heart when she composed her own. So what song will you sing whenever he comes? I hope it's a joyous chorus of praise. I hope you can sing this one right now in anticipation for the day. I hope the song that you sing won't be a funeral dirge because you failed to taste and see that the Lord is good and take so great a salvation that's mercifully offered to you. If it is a funeral dirge, Jesus can change that today. Just simply turn to Him. Nothing else you do Nothing else you can do. It's His mighty arm. It's His holy arm that saves. He's already accomplished that on the cross. You just have to turn from your own way, turn from your, your own strivings, your own attempts, your I'm good, I'm this, I'm that, I'm whatever else, and you have to, you have to just leave all of that and turn to Christ and look to Him. Put your hope and trust fully in Him. And say, Lord, I don't know how you would do it or why you did it, but I know that this, whatever I can do, gets me nowhere and I'm trusting here. I'm looking to Christ, Christ alone. And in doing that, you call upon His name. He saved you. It's that simple. That miraculous. It's that necessary for God to do it. Because we surely don't believe that Lazarus in his stinking grave clothes can just call himself forth out of the ground. But the Lord does that to sinners. Maybe he's doing that for you this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. As believers, we sing this song now. And we can't wait to sing it with all of the earth and a redeemed nature. I thank you for Jesus Christ who gives us this song, puts this song in our hearts, takes away fear, takes away concern of judgment, cleanses our conscience from dead works. Perfect love casts out all fear. We love you because you first loved us. And I pray, Lord, that anyone outside of Christ this morning would look to him and be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.